Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of a roundtable discussion during one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The topic is Individualized Education Programs, or IEPs for short. The panelists include Brian Middleton, an Autistic Board Certified Behavior Analyst, Colleen Dorsey, a Special Education Teacher, and Michael Gilberg, an Autistic Special Education and Disability Rights Attorney. Other community members present at the event and part of the discussion are Jeff Snyder, Mary Johnston, Ryan Litchfield, Jesse Sheehan, and Morgan Ferguson. In today's conversation, we discuss the different roles on an IEP team, how to reduce combativeness between professionals at IEP meetings, finding the sweet spot when writing goals and encouraging independence, how to best support families throughout the IEP process, and helpful accommodations suggested by self-advocates in the audience. Some acronyms mentioned in the conversation are IDEA, BCBA, and ABA. IDEA, or IDEA, is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is an American piece of legislation that ensures eligible students with a disability are provided with free, appropriate public education that is tailored to their individual needs. BCBA stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst, and ABA is Applied Behavior Analysis. In this episode, discover what's possible when the students' interests lead the team. To learn more about the panelists in this discussion, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. These monthly roundtable discussions are open exclusively to members of our global autism community. A new topic is selected based on each month's theme. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Brian Middleton, Colleen Dorsey, and Michael Gilberg. I think it's a small enough group that we can go around and just give a brief introduction. And then after that, I will spotlight our panelists and there will be time at the end for audience questions. And I would say, if you have a question while people are speaking, you can put it in the chat and I'll get to it that way too. Otherwise you can hold it and then we'll go through questions at the end. Colleen, you wanna introduce yourself first? Sure, I'm Colleen Dorsey and I am a special education teacher. I'm also a, I wanna say Skill Core alum, but I have yet to travel with the Global Autism Project, but I am hopeful as soon as we're able to. So I've been very involved with um, doing a lot of community outreach with the Global Autism Project. Great. And Brian. I am Brian Middleton. I'm a former special education teacher, autism advocate for both myself and other autistic individuals or individuals with autism, depending on which model you care most about. I am a board certified behavior analyst and a loud and obnoxious autistic guy. (laughs) All right. 
and Ryan. Hi, everybody. Um, Ryan Litchfield, and I am a autism self-advocate. Okay, Mary. I'm Mary, and I am a autistic self-advocate, and I run a blog called Autistic Rainbow 15, where I talk about my life on the autism spectrum, and I encourage people to understand what autism is to different autistics, and I also mention things that you should and shouldn't say to people on the spectrum. Right. And Morgan? Hi, I'm Morgan Ferguson, and I am an ABA, and I am here to learn more about everything I can learn. Great. And Jeff? Hi there. I'm, uh, I'm Jeff Snyder. I'm an autism and neurodiversity slash disability self-advocate. I'm based in Seekonk, Massachusetts, near Providence, Rhode Island. I am a one of the moderators for the community. I also run a Facebook group called Jeff Snyder Disability Self-Advocacy. And I also run a page called Jeff Snyder Disability Self-Advocate. Upon my graduation from high school in 2007, I became the first student with autism to have completed pre-K through grade 12 without coming from other towns or school districts. My apologies for coming on late. I was actually cooking dinner, so uh, glad to be a part of the uh, round table tonight. Great. Okay, and I'm Rachel. I work with the Global Autism Project currently as the podcast host and writer. Thank you all for, for being here. Now, I actually wanted to start off the conversation with something that Colleen brought up, which I thought was really interesting, that actually IEP stands for Individualized Education Program, not PLAN. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that and talk about the difference? Yeah, and I wasn't sure, quite honestly, I meant to do some further research if that was maybe just a Massachusetts thing, but I always said plan as well. But then when I actually print out and finish my students' IEPs, it says program on the top. And I no, the way I like to look at it is like we we make plans to do individual things, but the reason it's a program is it's more than just a plan. It's a whole program of people and services and it's having the whole like almost like you have a school program, right? So you're going to have an actual program of how to support the individual and not just a plan. It's like taking the plan and turning it into the program that best fits that student. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. I did a little Google search and yes, an idea comes up as program, not plan. I guess it depends on how each state implements it though, because it is a federal law that was state implementation and I remember skimming idea, but I don't remember specifically program coming up. So good thing to learn and know. (laughs) Okay. So maybe we can kind of clarify what your roles are on the IEP team. Okay. So Colleen, you're a special ed teacher and Brian, you are the BCBA coming onto the team. You want to start Brian on this one? My job is to support the parents and the special ed teachers. My job is to offer my expertise, but not run the meeting and more specifically be a support 
there have been times when I've made the mistake of, of, of speaking a little bit too much. And that has a little bit more to do with uh, <laughs> the ASD aspect of things than it is what my role is. But long and short of it is I'm a support staff. My job is not to lead. I love that. And my um, being a special ed teacher, and I've actually been working for an educational collaborative. I'm going wrapping up my eighth year. And for those of you that don't aren't familiar with a collaborative, it's basically if a public school finds that they're not able to give a classroom model that best supports the student, they're referred out to our collaborative. And a collaborative is kind of that step before being removed from the public school or from their hometown district because we're members with the surrounding towns. And in my work with the collaborative is it's, I have my own classroom and it's me as a teacher, but I have a speech therapist, an occupational therapist. We have a whole team and we actually, my first like five or six years, we did not have a BCBA. And I know that sounds wild and I can't wait to learn more from you, Brian, about your BCBA participation, because this is my first full year of having a full-time BCBA and actually be part of the IEPs. And the reason I bring that up is as a special education teacher, I've learned from my other friends that are in public schools as special education teachers that I actually do a lot of the IEP that not many people do. I do not do the whole entire IEP, but I do a very big chunk of it. So I'm responsible for coming up with the goals. Obviously, if a speech therapist has an individual goal, they're in charge of that goal. But sometimes my students will graduate or show so much progress in their therapies that they'll move from direct services over to consultation, they call it. So then they no longer have the main goal and they embed their objectives into my goal. So again, it's a lot. I, on average, my students can have anywhere from three to six at the most in my experience goals on their IEPs. And I usually am in charge of all but one of those in creating it and drafting it and coming up with it. So I do a big part of that. And I know, Brian, I appreciate what you said about the meeting, being there to support the, the parents and the team. And as a teacher, I've had to lead some IEP meetings. I have a program supervisor who I kind of look at as a principal in our our setting. She'll typically run the meetings, but there's been times where she's not able to make it. So I've had to run meetings. So when we talk about IEPs, I just feel like I say I do them in my sleep because I've had to do a lot when it comes to IEPs. It's been kind of fun for me because I'm learning a new role because I was a special ed teacher for seven years and I worked in school districts that did not have BCBAs. In fact, I found out about BCBAs and behavior analysis when I was handed as the behavior special ed teacher some of the kids with the hardest behavioral challenges, most of which happen to be on spectrum. And that's actually how I discovered I was autistic. I was like, wait, this is my childhood and I'm doing such a great job helping them because I understand where they're coming from and I'm treating them like shocker people. <laughs> so, but there was still those situations where there was just a couple things that weren't quite clicking, even with me doing all those things. And so I started looking for more resources, resources. And that's why I discovered behavior analysis, warts and all, and there's plenty of warts and I'm trying to help change that. But a big part of it for me was I was in charge of the IEP meeting in the district I was at. It was a rural district. And I soon discovered a lot of the administrators didn't actually understand IDEA and what that entails. So I'm glad that you have an administrator who does. <laughs> and so it's it's been kind of a fun journey for me to 
learn to take a new role and instead of being the one that's leading the meeting, pushing what's going on, instead saying, hey, I'm here to support. I'm here to answer questions if you have any. I'm here to provide data if you need the data. And if the IEP team is an, a, an awesome team, my job is to back them up and, and help them whenever I'm talking with the, the mom. And if the IEP team is kind of drifting away from the goals of IDEA, then my job is also to let the parent know what their rights are. And it doesn't happen often in my experience, but it has happened every once in a while where there's that conflict of interest of we have to worry about the budget and we also have to worry about what's best for the kid. And so sometimes I have to pull the parent aside and say, just so you know, this is what your rights are. And if you ask for the procedural safeguards, they'll have to tell you that. I hate doing that because that creates a antagonistic relationship. And I usually, when I'm talking with parents and clients, when they want to be a part of the self-advocacy process, I always try to inject understanding that we're looking at different environments. So in a clinical environment, I have more resources, but in a, a school environment, there maybe aren't as many resources, but on top of that, it's also a different environment altogether. So we have to take that into account. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to introduce Michael Gilberg. Thanks for joining us, Michael. I apologize for my lateness. I was having some Zoom issues. Do you want to just give a quick introduction about yourself? Sure, my name is Michael Gilberg. I'm a special ed attorney and self-advocate who grew up, excuse me, with undiagnosed Asperger's until I was 18. Didn't get an appropriate education, so after school, went to law school. Law school became a special ed attorney, and now I represent families in special ed proceedings who are looking for either a different placement, different school, different services, change in services, change in placement, who feel they're not getting a free and appropriate education under the IDEA, using both my own life experience and my knowledge of the law to help them secure appropriate programs. And right now, going through a couple of really contentious hearings involving children on the spectrum. All right, well, we're happy you're here with us. Brian was just talking actually about how teams need to be keeping the interest of the individual kind of at the forefront. And we actually had a question from Jesse earlier today asking about tips to diminish this combativeness between professionals at IEP meetings. Do you guys have any tips that you can offer? My number one tip is really the number one tip I give to all humans, regardless of what your neurotype is. Try to give the benefit of the doubt, always. It leads to better outcomes. That being said, so this goes into a little bit of game theory. Sorry if it gets a little complex. So if you look into game theory and there's this cool little flash game you can play online that teaches you about it. Basically, there's different ways that you can respond to people. And the people who are copycats in game theory are more successful where basically, if you do good to me, I do good to you. If you do wrong to me, I do wrong to you. And those tend to be more successful, but there's another step that you can take, and that is being what is dubbed a copy kitten, which is 
if you do wrong to me, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt two or three times, but if you keep doing it, then I'm going to start copying back and, and reflecting back to you. And based off of game theory, which there's some pretty neat research on, and no, this is not behaviorism, but I don't stick to just one area. I love exploring, but based off of game theory, if we have enough people doing that, and I think the crucial number is 20% or more of people present who are doing copy kittens, then that results in better outcomes. Whereas if you're doing copycat, the outcomes tend to spiral very quickly. You have to have, I think, closer to 30 or 40% of people present doing that in order for it to be successful. So that would be my advice is try to give that benefit of the doubt, but don't be stupid. Because <laughs> if someone has taken advantage of you, there comes a certain point where you have to be like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> My role as an attorney is, it can be viewed as an adversarial thing. I view it as, in some ways, the relationship between the parents and the district is broken down, school district is broken down, and it's now up to me and the school district attorney to be that bridge, depending. There are some school district attorneys I get along great with, and there are some school district attorneys I get along horribly with. But usually the ones I don't get along with, no parent attorney gets along with. And I see us as a bridge. Obviously, by the time a parent calls me, things have deteriorated in many cases. I'm not getting calls from parents who are happy with their services. So I see that in some cases, it's, I can be that bridge. In some cases, you have no choice. I have a case right now we're in a hearing on. The kid is on the spectrum. He's been consistently bullied. They've denied he's got autism. They, do, they have denied he's been bullied. They've said he should learn to be normal. They've said he's not autistic. But all these what, irritating behaviors he has piss off his peers, and therefore, that's why they're beating him up. And so this is a case where cooperation isn't going to work. And the attorney is a jerk and has told me point blank, this kid deserves whatever he gets. We have a video of the kid being hit by another peer and held, and he then defends himself. He was wrong for defending himself more than the peer who initially attacked him. So sometimes you get to cases like that where I don't think there's a way to find that common solution. But in many cases, I think that my job as an attorney is also sometimes to tell my clients, no, you can't have that. Very often I have to tell parents, no, you're not entitled to that. When parents want something, they're not entitled. I used to have a boss who said, you're not entitled to the Cadillac. And I said, but you're also not entitled to the Ford Pinto. You're entitled to the nice, reliable Chevy. All right, Colleen? I was going to say one thing that's helped me in meetings, Jesse, with all the different professionals and roles that come to the table is to really hope. And I try to myself focus on what my role is, right? Like one big thing I've learned in working in special education with not just other teachers, but with all the different related service providers is my job is to be there as the special education teacher and represent what I can academically or socially and what my responsibilities are. And the speech is there to represent speech. The parents are there to represent the child until the child is old enough to attend and speak for themselves. So I don't know if that directly answers the question. And I know you can't say like, you're just a teacher, focus on being a teacher in the middle of the meeting. But I think if we all, any of us that show up to an IEP meeting, just keep in mind what your role is and what your overall goal is for the meeting, and then try to advocate the best you can for the rest of the team. If they feel like anyone might be, I don't want to say overstepping, but trying to just focus on what their involvement is in the meeting. Great. Well, and I think there's some point in that 
And I think one of the problems I find as an attorney is that teachers and professionals who work for the school district are often afraid to say what they think and to be honest, especially to say to the person paying their check, signing their paycheck, you're wrong. I've never directly worked for public school. I've been, my classroom was placed in a public school. And I think unfortunately from the public school, from like the district point of view, that can be the case, right? Like the administration and the leaders hold that. And it does, it gets tough where people are afraid to speak up because of who might else be at the meeting. Right, and there's been cases, and not in a lot, of public school staff speaking up and then getting fired and having retribution. So there is an issue that the staff is, and I find that public school staff are silenced in many cases. I just had a case today, a new case. The mother said that at the meeting, the speech pathologist tried to speak up for her, and the chairwoman basically silenced her. Part of the reason that I exited special education and went into strictly behavior analysis was because of that sort of characteristic that I was dealing with. The school district in question is still dealing with some lawsuits, and frankly, I hope they lose <laughs> because I was an insider on that situation. And when asked if I would be willing to be a witness, I, I said yes, because I saw that sort of thing. But here's an important thing to remember, even in those adversarial conditions, I was that teacher who was pulled between. Now, a part of my introduction at the beginning is I'm the annoying autistic guy. For me personally, my learning history has led to me being willing to speak up a lot, even if I get a lot of punishment for it, because I'm sick and tired of, of watching this sort of stuff happen over and over and over and over. And I was in a family where speaking up was the only way to get what you needed. So for whatever reason, I've learned that speaking up pays off more than it hurts. And so because of that, I, I did have to play some long games sometimes where I had to inform the parents, but also tell them, I didn't tell you this the school district can't know that I told you this because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. You found it from this resource that I'm pointing to you here. <laughs> and so when you bring this up, this is you who's bringing it up. And I, all I can do is say, oh yeah, that is true. And it sucked a lot. But the number one thing that I've, in those adversarial conditions that I, I have to say to parents, or if you're coaching parents who don't know what they're doing is the parents and the individual have the power. Idea puts the power predominantly in your hands. And so if you don't speak up and a school district is not doing what they're supposed to do, then nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Like Michael was just saying, there are conditions where people are, are demanding something that is, that is outside the resources and that's one of the reasons why I think that taking the collaborative approach is such a big deal. I usually come out in as an outside contractor. I'm not a district employee. So my job is to be that support staff. And I'm predominantly providing services in home and center. But if the school staff are open to it and the school district is open to it, I am 100% happy to come into the school, come into the home, uh, in, into the classroom and use the analytic skills I have to, to help the teachers. And not all I, behavior analysts have the experience I have. 
but I got the vast majority of my supervision hours completed while I was a special ed teacher. So I was applying behavior analytic principles, principles in the classroom. So it's all about engaging the team and working together to take it out of that tangent I was going off of. And the, the, the core of that team is the parents and the individual. And I say the individual because if the receiver of the IEP can self-advocate even a little bit, there's actually some amazing research, both in behavior analysis and social psychology that point back to if the individual is drawn in and engaged and is a participant in this, then outcomes change drastically than if they're just present and people are talking about them while they're in the room. I was just going to bounce off of or kind of wrap up Brian's point about ultimately it's the parents or the individual that the IEP is for. And I just wanted to add in that I was glad Brian brought up his communication with the parents because as a teacher, I was always taught by my mentor and I continue to do this. I always call the parents a day or two before the meeting just to make sure they remember the meetings happening. And I know legally you can't discuss much, but it's more of that to help them know that it's coming up and get them ready and get them to feel confident to bring up any concerns or topics they want to talk about. And they always appreciate that because then they come to the meeting more confident to discuss. Great. I'm just going to agree with them. I will, talk, I will let you move on to the next topic. Okay. I had a thought too. Can I chime in? Sure. I think there's a big gap in parents, the time available, especially in public schools for parents to get to be an informed part of the team. And I think our best collaborative and like I'm, a, I'm in the schools too. So I guess that's a good thing to add, but our best meetings are the time when parents get like our, they've had the, almost the training to be on equal footing. And so I feel like there's definitely a big gap in parents are kind of thrown into this process often and it's so overwhelming. And then if you are in a school that's maybe not, whether it's funding or timing or whatever, I feel like those then can go sour because there's like a lack of, of being on the same playing field almost. So I just like Jeff's comment too, of like the family's not understanding. And then like Colleen, you being able to bring parents in ahead of time. Like, it just seems like when there's the same knowledge being shared and you're honest and upfront, it can go so much better. But I just feel like it's interesting that that kind of all ties together in some of the reasons that it, it can become more challenging. Great point. Thanks, Jesse. Um, so I just want to make sure we can talk about goals and accommodations. And I do want to get some input from the audience too. So maybe this question is a little bit more towards Colleen. When you're writing goals, how do you determine that sweet spot between accommodations and allowing for independence so that the student can succeed? So do you want me to strictly answer about my goal development or more how I select my accommodations? Because in the IEP, there's like the goal pages where I write the current performance level and all mm -hmm. that. And then there's a whole separate page about where I list all the accommodations that the student needs to be successful. Yeah, you can just talk about, I mean, you would have the accommodations to reach the goals, right? Yeah. So the accommodations is overall to support their learning environment, which then obviously ties into each goal. So for me in Massachusetts, every three years, you have to reevaluate a student to see if they still qualify for special education services. And I use a lot of the data from my evaluations, the assessments I do, whether informal or formal, to help me identify where they're at 
And then always thinking about where they want to be, where they want to be or where they can be. And I always think of their, you know, their fullest and highest potential and what tools can be put into place to help them be successful. And I love Rachel, you said the word independent, right? Like you want to put accommodations that are going to help work with them and not do things for them. So I think that's a really big push is, and I have to admit, I've seen over the years, a lot of people just copy and paste. Oh, here's a list of accommodations. Let's put these in again. But I make sure to take that time to highlight ones that are still beneficial and still in need or highlight, and I do different colors, I'm a color coder, and then I put in different color ones that they might not need anymore, or might need the next step up or the step down, if that makes sense. So accommodations, I think is like a science in itself, right? Because there's so many great ones out there. And it's so unique and individual to each student what they need. So I guess in summary, my accommodations, I look at each goal area, and what they need to be successful, whether it's their academic goal, or their social goal, or their behavioral goal, and how they can best support be supported in my classroom environment. Mm-hmm. I think with, excuse me, if you don't mind my jumping. Go ahead, go ahead. They deal with goals all the time. Goals, as we always say, have to be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic. And I forgot the fourth one of the SMART goals. But very often what I find is a problem is when goals are not measurable. And they give you a goal like Sally will learn to interact with peers appropriately. But how do you measure that? How do you measure appropriate interaction how do you measure quality you know they're qualitative but they're not really because you're not measuring it against something I always try to use the word by like that exact sentence you said like she will appropriately interact with peers by and then give a specific example and then measure it with how many out about how many opportunities or what you want the overall average to be for them well, and I will tell you this, if, if there's a behavior analyst on the team or even one that can consult, that is our jam. Yeah. The measurable goals is our thing. We are super good at this. And this is, there, again, there's problems with behavior analysis, but one of the, the things that we don't have a problem with is knowing how to create smart goals and being able to divine, define measurable parameters for a behavior because we come up with functional definitions. We know we've practice learning how to break goals down and and create little snippets that can lead up to something. So while I am no longer a special education teacher, I still think that I'm a special education teacher because I'm using the same skills that I learned when I started as a SPED teacher, but the additional training I received has made it even more effective. And that's not to say that special ed teachers aren't effective because I've met special ed teachers that can blow me out of the water when it comes to this sort of stuff. But if there's a behavior analyst on the team or somebody who can consult and the sped teacher is struggling with those sorts of things, that's where the collaboration comes in and makes a big difference. Brian, I love that because often I know what I want my students, like what skill I want. And then I send my like random thought that might not make sense to anyone to my now BCBA. And she's like, this is what you meant. And she puts it in more of a measurable way. And I'm like, yes, like you just read my mind or help me make sense of it. So yes, I think that's so important, the collaboration. One thing someone said about move cutting and pasting from previous years. And that's a big problem with IEPs that I find as a lawyer, that's where I am going after them because you're not supposed to just copy and paste things in the IEP from year to year. You're supposed to actually discuss, is this still relevant? Is this still necessary? Is this still appropriate? Great. And I'd like to invite some of our 
self-advocates in the audience to share any accommodations that you found helpful while you were in school. And also, I'd like to frame it helpful or harmful, like any kind of feedback you want to give to these professionals. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I think one reasonable accommodation that a lot of students will try to seek that, I and I posted it in the chat wall, is something that I'm very passionate about in terms of accommodations is getting a heads up for school safety drills, especially when it comes to fire drills. Because when I was in school, I always got advance notice. I would always get taken out of the building before they would pull the fire alarm or like a lockdown drill. The only time I ever got advanced notice on a, lockdown, on a lockdown drill was when I was in middle school. That was it. And then the only other accommodation that I think a lot of students will often request, but probably won't get is the bus evacuation drill. Because especially when it comes to, you know, being in a bus evacuation drill, you're, you're thinking that the driver is going to be deliberate when it's, you know, a simulation. So I think, you know, you kind of have to, it's sort of a give and take, if you will, when it comes to school safety drills and IEPs. Thanks, Jeff. Mary? So one of the most helpful things on my IEP was how they updated it when I got diagnosed with ADHD and generalized anxiety disorder. Because one of the biggest things I was allowed to do was take breaks and escape the classroom if it got too overwhelming. So if I was working on something and I was having an incredibly challenging time focusing, I was allowed to take like a five minute power walk, which really helped me kind of regroup. And another good thing was if I was getting too overwhelmed in class due to what we were learning about or just overstimulation, I was allowed to leave and go work someplace a lot quieter, which really helped me anxiety wise. And they would give me like a sensory toy to play with. When I was in middle school, they let me play with kinetic sand while I worked, which really helped me focus with like the stimulation. And another great thing is allowing me to have longer time on like quizzes and tests. So that way I have that extra time to really think over the questions because with ADHD, I can be kind of impulsive sometimes. So to really just sit down and process it all like one by one and then really make the best decision is really great to have that. Great. Thanks, Mary. Ryan? So first of all, I just want to say, you know, to the panelists, you know, you all bring up very, very good points. And I think, you know, what I'm taking away from the points, like especially when we're talking about accommodations and goals, I think we have to look at it as, you know, a person-centered approach. And we look at it in a way where we're identifying the strengths and the needs. So I have a background in human services rehabilitation and also with aging. But anyway, especially in the field of human services, it's kind of like, with, you know, there's a similarity with that and special education where we're looking at a holistic view. We're trying to get an idea of, you know, who this person is, narrow those issues, and then, you know, try to figure out, you know, what could be the best alternatives and stuff. And, you know, the saying goes, you know, the one person with autism, you know, you meet, you meet one person with autism, you meet one person with autism. You know, like for me, 
like one of the things is social pragmatics. My mom and dad, they pretty much, they were going to IEP meetings. They were like, you know, it shouldn't be just about academics. It should be about the person's social, emotional goals, be vocational goals. Because one of the things I actually did in high school was did some volunteer work at an early childhood center as a way to, you know, kind of get myself thinking, okay, vocationally, what do I want to start doing in the future? And again, I mean, every individual is going to be different, but you have to, it's like, you know, IEP should not just be academic based. And I think sometimes in the schools, it's like so focused on the academics and it's like, okay, but what about the person's social, you know, like building the relationships and building, you know, those employment skills and stuff, because the skills that you learn in the public school, whether you're in a public school system or collaborative, you know, you know, with this program, it's supposed to help people to transition from the public school system into adulthood. And I think for me, that's why, you know, some of these accommodations, you know, that people have, it's a way to compensate for, for those needs, you know, to compensate for the needs, but to also really get a feel of those strengths. And I think sometimes, you know, like human services, especially in special education and stuff, but sometimes we're like, okay, these are all the issues that are going on. Something to just keep in mind too, is we have to sometimes be active listeners and also, you know, to be able to, you know, hear what the parents and what the individuals are saying, you know, kind of like what Colleen and, and Brian and, you know, Michael were saying is like, you know, we need to be able to listen and to be able to get their perspective. And it, it all goes to perspective taking. So I wanted to add some of that information because those are some excellent points. And I think, you know, the, I, the process is it's, it's not only collaborative, but you're taking a holistic view in general. And I think that's the shift where things need to be going and stuff, especially, you know, once you're 18 to 22, it's like, once you're 22 years old, CLA, you know, it's like, that's the phasing out period. And it's like, some parents are concerned as to, you know, what's going to happen when I'm done, you know, being on an IEP and stuff. And so that's why you, you establish those, you know, goals and you establish those objectives because, you, you know, you're trying to help them to learn and grow as a person. That's just basically my thoughts in general, how that, you know, that IEP process should look like and stuff. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, back to the panelists. Any responses to any of that? Oh, I just wanted to add to those comments, the comment Jeff made about giving people a heads up for fire drills. The problem is that in a real situation, there's not going to be a heads up. So that's a hard accommodation to ask for because in a real emergency in, in this day and age with school shootings being as prevalent as they are, they want people to act in a naturalistic environment. So um, something to go along the lines with that is that I found as a special ed teacher, it's the accommodation I wish I had had as a kid. <laughs> and, I, and it was one that I built into my classroom and I had an amazing administrator to start with. And so he allowed for it to happen and it managed to stay as a result of that. But I turned my classroom into the alternative lunchroom. And it wasn't just the special ed kids who were welcome. It was any kid who wanted to have that little bit of sensory reduction. And by doing that, because those lunchrooms can be so overwhelming, by doing that, what happened is it allowed for some desensitization, because instead of it being them being thrust every day 
into this overwhelming environment. They could go into the overwhelming environment long enough to get their food, then come to my classroom where it was a lot more chill, where like the lighting was lower, the things were easier for them to be able to tolerate. And then they would go back out into the loud environment. And I actually had kids who the first year that they started with me, I was a middle school teacher, so sixth grade, they started with me sixth grade coming in and getting that support. And then as they gradually got better and better at tolerating those environments, they started going out into lunchrooms more and more and more and more. And the side effect was that those kids tolerated fire drills and earthquake drills and all those other things a lot better when it came to the alarms. But then the other accommodation that I made sure that all my kids who had sensory challenges when it came to loud noises had was they had a pair of over-the-ear headphones that would follow them around. And so when the fire drill would go off, they could just stick them over their ears. And those headphones also came out whenever there were assemblies. So that way they could be with their peers and tolerate it. And I went out to Harbor Freight, thank you Harbor Freight, bought a crap ton of these and any kid could ask for them. It didn't matter if they had an IEP or not. So I started having kids coming saying, Mr. Middleton, can I have these, those headphones? I'm like, bring them back. And I'd have let them check them out and they'd take them and then they'd bring them back. And the result was more inclusion. And the thing I have to say, and this is one of my few bragging rights that I have to brag about. When I started as the behavior special ed teacher, it was not 100% inclusion. When I left, 100% of my, st my students were in class. The only time that they were out of class was for a study hall, but it wasn't a special ed study hall. It was just a regular old study hall that I happened to be in. And that's part of the goal is trying to get learning to tolerate, but not throwing them into the deep end with Jaws and the piranha and the jellyfish. The accommodations are about getting us to the point where we can learn to tolerate. And if we can't learn to tolerate, giving the accommodations necessary to be able to succeed, like, for example, carrying those earmuffs around with them, which I think it cost me five bucks at Harbor Freight for the headphone things. Five, best five bucks I ever spent. Mm -hmm. Colleen, did you have something to I just want to go back to something Ryan said about the holistic point of view. And I have to agree with a lot of people in the chat. And just, I think in general, we're talking a lot about how, unfortunately, a lot of people focus a lot on the academics. And I have to admit that's really where my background came from. And my first placement was to really focus on kids that were academically competitive still. However, I have recently moved to the high school and been working more on the vocational and the life skills. And I think it's very important to my goal is for, a stu for students to, you know, if it's not an academic specific goal, to become a functional academics, which what I mean by that is working on those life skills of, okay, yes, they're not, let's stop on addition and multiplication and division. Let's let go of all of that. And what type of math can we work on to make them be more functional and independent in real life? And another goal that we've been starting to do more of is an independence goal, a self-advocacy goal, and what skills can they work on to be more successful in life? So I just appreciate what Ryan said about, you know, because the 18 to 22, I think often we focus so much on academics and then they turn 18 to 22 and then they start to focus on the life skills and the vocational where it really needs to start happening sooner. Great point. And I love that self-advocacy goal. I have my students say like, Miss Dorsey, I advocate for myself. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, um, we have seven minutes left. 
And now I'm going to turn it to the audience to ask any questions to the panelists. Did you ever have any challenges working with parents and students to get goals like completed? Well, I feel like for me, we always, at the end of the IEP, we agreed because again, I am going off of what I know for Massachusetts. I should find out if this is, uh, is across all states or not. You legally have 10 days to complete the IEP. So we always had a goal to complete it within like five days or like sooner. So we had that wiggle room. But what do you mean by them not, do you mean like parents agreeing on certain goals or getting certain goals? Yeah. Open? Like if they like differ in opinion, like I know when I was at my IEP meetings, like some, like my mom would like have a lot of different opinions that my father did. And then my dad would like disagree with her. And then they would have to kind of be like forced to find like a mutual side. Well, that sounds like a lawyer question, but if the disagreement is between the parents, that's something they have to work out ahead of time. I mean, that's, I assume they were divorced. And if you have a skilled enough team, you can take mom and dad's ideas and find a way to put it into a common, like don't, like some might be like, I need a math goal, I need a reading goal, but then you could collaborate. And but I, I always tell parents if they disagree, you work that out ahead of time. You don't bring that into the meeting. Mm -hmm. Whether they're married or divorced, I, even if when I tell this to divorced couples, I don't care if you hate each other. I don't care if you can't stand each other. I don't care about any other issue of your divorce. You'll be on the same page in that meeting for that kid because the, if you two are fighting with each other, the person who's going to suffer is your child and the school team is going to see that as weakness and you're not going to get either of what you want. Yeah. My parents were a lot like that. They would drastically disagree with each other in the meeting over certain goals being completed. And then they wouldn't like fight over it. They are divorced, but they kind of like politely bickered about it, if that makes sense. And the team would have to find like a solution for both of them to agree on, which ultimately did make it a little bit longer, which was kind of annoying. But ultimately, they did find like a resolution. I think in reality, sometimes parents won't, they, they refuse to talk before the meeting. So I think that's a great suggestion, Michael, to say, but I think sometimes that conflict happens, whether you plan for it or not. Well, like so. I said, you know, Colleen, look, it's one thing to disagree with the school team. When you're disagreeing as parents, that's a whole different animal. And that's just not helpful. Well, and there's kind of a subtext uh, or, or something that you, you mentioned, Mary, that I frequently dealt with as a special ed teacher. And that is that sometimes a parent would come in and be combative over things that I, I, the IEP team has no control over. And sometimes it's a matter of just letting them know what we can do and informing them of that. Um, there were definitely times when the parents, I hate to say this, but the parents were the reason why the kid was struggling the most. And in the community I lived in, I wish that we had had the resources to be able to refer them for counseling. Because in one particular instance, the parent would, during meetings, would repeatedly say, I wish that you were never born to the child. And that is horrifying. And unfortunately, that is a reality that sometimes happens, is that children are dealing with homes that are not hospitable. And so trying to collaborate with the whole team and provide some stability for the child makes all the difference. And that actually goes into the ACEs research, Adverse Childhood Experiences, but that's a different 
ball of wax altogether. So <laughs> I think one thing I always do for, pa- I have parents that don't talk or I have kids that live in group homes and don't have parents that come to the meeting. And one thing I take pride in is I have my students now that they're old enough to attend, but even if they're not, I always start my meeting and I ask my the person leading it a way to celebrate, whether it's telling a story of something positive, the kid themselves making a slideshow that's presented. And it's amazing how the parents like for that moment, forget about all their differences and can focus on, wow, my son or daughter has done amazing things and let's continue to build on that instead of, so it starts the meeting off in a positive way. And it's important to always try to not just look at somebody as a frame of deficits and a frame of abilities, but actually looking at them as a whole person because we're not a list of, of, of deficits and strengths. We are people first and foremost. And the deficits and strengths are a framework for trying to help support people, but the goal is for people to live well. And whether people happen to be of one neurotype or another, whether they happen to have certain challenges or another is irrelevant. At the end of the day, the foundation is you're a person, each person deserves to be treated with respect and care. Now, how can we use these deficits and strengths to build them? I also I think part of the problem is, and this happens a lot with divorced couples who don't like each other, you end up in a situation where they're acting out their divorce through the child. In the meeting, I've also had a lot of cases where the fathers don't want to, and I don't want to stereotype to just fathers, but it's more fathers than mothers don't accept the child's limitations. Or in some cases, the mothers of unreal, and again, don't want to stereotype, but it's generally mothers, unrealistic, unrealistic expectations, and that leads to tension with the parents. So it's sometimes hard, but I always say to the parents, you have to be on the same page because you have to fight with everybody else. Because by the time they're coming to me, things are obviously not good between the parents and the school district. And I think it's important for the team to come to meetings. I it, it makes me sad to hear a lot of chats. And I know this that people think IEP meetings are business-like and they're challenging and they're difficult. I always look forward to my IEP meetings because I go into it wanting to celebrate how far the students come and try to set that tone. So we can again focus on the kid and not just their list of deficits, but celebrate their strengths and build on them. I agree with Colleen. and I also look forward to them because they're getting paid to be there. But to be honest, I that's a joke, but to be honest, I look at them as a method of helping the child and telling the school district not to just say you're wrong, but here's how you can do better. Although in some cases, some school districts are so bad, I literally have to go in there and say, you're wrong. It's not appropriate to let this kid get beat up. It's not appropriate to tell him to learn to be normal. It's not appropriate is when cases are egregious, but uh, cases where it's not appropriate to do this with a kid. So it all depends on the meeting, whether we can get to that place of the school district finding out that they there are better ways to do with to accomplish what they want than to punish the child. Any last thoughts? One final thing to say from each panelist? I think, you know, off the top of my head, I like to say it's like a 13 to 20 page document in some cases. I There's so much you can talk about with an IEP, right? So I think this was a great start. And I think it's something that everyone needs to continue to learn and be knowledgeable about for anyone with any type of ability, right? Because it's what a lot of kids 
have these programs to help them be successful. And I think it, it has to continue to be talked about. I agree. I think that it's so important for kids on the spectrum to learn how to advocate for themselves but, and self-advocacy, but also to make the IEP process beneficial, not combative, although combative helps me at work, but in some cases. The problem I find is also that, honestly, being a parent is one of the most important jobs in the world and one of the only ones you don't need a license for. Anybody can be a parent. And so you get parents who are really good and you get parents who I've gone to IEP meetings and I literally have to hold their hand. And unfortunately now with Zoom meetings, there are parents I can't kick under the table. And since I'm not the control of the Zoom, I can't mute them. But I've had a couple of cases where I wanted to kick them under the table and be like, shut up. So I think that, you know, it's about realizing parents come in all shapes and stripes, right? Well, sizes, not sizes. Parents, there are all different kinds of parents. And some parents will be very knowledgeable and some parents will not. And I always tell the story to about make, realize about making assumptions. I had two clients at once, a former child welfare attorney in another state and a dog river. I treated the former child welfare attorney like she would have some basic knowledge on her own. I didn't need to hold her hand. She'd worked in a similar field. I treated the dog groomer. I held her hand too much. The dog groomer felt I was treating her like an idiot and talking down to her and didn't like it. And the child welfare attorney felt that wasn't being clear enough. And honestly, I needed to talk to her like she was an idiot. And because I gave her the deference of her position and her career and her field, and that she was an attorney who worked in child welfare, you would think it would naturally segue to special ed, but she couldn't pick it up. And I had to treat her like a mother who had no experience. And it just shows you making assumptions doesn't always work based on their career. The dog groomer had a much better sense of how to run an IEP meeting than a former child welfare attorney. So you just parents come with all different kinds and you need to be able to help teach the parent and work with them within who they are as well. So my final thoughts are be a copy kitten, not a copycat. I posted and then reposted the link to that little game. The benefit of the doubt makes a big difference, but also knowing that when there's a pattern of being stepped on and being treated poorly, it's appropriate for you to speak up and self-advocate and for the parents to speak up and say, uh-uh, this isn't okay. At the end of the day, the only way that change is going to happen is if we speak up if we collaborate and if we make sure that this is not a pattern of neglect, but instead a pattern of working together and solving problems. And even if there is neglect on the part of a school or a team member where someone's not doing it, giving them that benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to correct, because at the end of the day, if we can collaborate, problem is solved. There are times and places when it's appropriate to also fire team members, but you got to start first with collaboration before you you move to that level. Otherwise, you don't get anywhere. Okay, great. Thank you all. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This was, I thought, such a rich conversation. I appreciate you guys. Thank you everyone in the audience and especially Michael and Brian. I um, started listening to both your episodes of the podcast because I just think there's, we all have so much to learn from each other. And I just appreciate both of you bringing your pieces to the table and me as the teacher learning from you. Great. And we'll see everyone in the community.
Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. With so many kinds of professionals involved on an IEP team, collaboration is key to ensure that students succeed. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.